time passed, Plato's influence increased. Philo brought him to the Jews. Enter Christianity. Augustine cemented Plato to the West in written pages. Place of faith over reason, bringing in the Dark Ages. Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be responding to a Unitarian, and that's a Dr. Dale Tuggy, and he engages in this debate with uh, Chris Date, is Jesus human and not divine? Now, I'm not going to be defending Chris Date's arguments. I think his arguments are really bad, and uh, he does his, his thing where he argues from the grammar as if uh, that's very conclusive. He assumes a lot of, he argues from emotion too. Uh, that's a pretty funny part. But Dr. Dale Tuggy, I think, categorically, makes a lot of errors in his opening statements. Errors that should be addressed. Errors that probably stem from him having a Platonic and not a Semitic outlook on religion. He's, he's coming to the Bible with Platonic categories rather than Biblical Semitic categories of how the world functions and operates. I, I think the Semitic categories are what we experience in our day-to-day -day life. We don't experience uh, Platonic forms, what Dale Tuggy tries to argue in this debate. And we'll, we'll cover that very briefly before we get into his words so everyone could kind of understand and see it as he makes these arguments that he's coming from this Platonic perspective. So what do I mean by Platonic forms? In Plato, there's a theory of ideas or theory of forms. And what this states is that in this ethereal world, there's a bunch of blueprints of everything that exists on in the world. And everything that exists on in the world is an object that's based on this divine blueprint. And the closer it is to this blueprint, the closer it is to perfection. And so there, there's a perfect cat out there somewhere. Maybe there's a perfect uh, Braxton Hunter, as he, he points out in one of his podcasts. There might be a perfect Braxton Hunter out there in the realm of the ideas. This is the idea that Dale Tuggy, he brings to uh, the divine. He says that God must have XYZ properties. These properties are inherent in what it means to be divine. And without those, then you're not divine anymore. Rather than a Semitic category is that you figure out God's properties, their characteristics. You figure out who God is, and those are characteristics. They're not necessarily inherent. They're not his because he is divine. That's not how Semitic theology works. You you get the properties from the character study rather than some uh, abstract theory of forms. This is what God must be like. So let's talk about a practical example of what I'm talking about. Let's say I got three cats, and you guys probably hear so much about my cats, and they're running around my house, and they're throwing up on my carpet, and you look around, you see these animals there, and you're like, are these cats? So you flip to the dictionary, and you see this. A cat is a small, domesticated, carnivorous mammal with soft fur, a short snout, and retractable claws. So, Uh-oh, a couple of my cats are declawed, so are they not cats anymore? What if my cat has matted fur? It's not soft fur. Is that no longer a cat? What about these hairless cats? Are they no longer cats? If there's a cat that's a vegetarian, is that no longer a cat? What if it has all those properties? Maybe it's a hairless vegetarian and uh, clawless cat. Is that not a cat anymore? What happens in real life uh, when we look at the world around us, we, we build these loose categorizations that we could semi- push different uh, things that we experience in the world. We can push them into these categories. And what that allows us to do is uh, communicate effectively to others. Yeah, we, we all roughly know what a cat is. So you could look at a cat and kind of evaluate, uh, but, but it's not 100%. Sometimes there's things that defy categorization. Maybe there's a table slash chair that people could use as a table or use it as a chair. Is it a table or is it a chair? What kind of properties make something a chair versus a table? Uh, the categories are loose. There's a lot of overlap in categorization. 
They're they're not hard and fast. They're not per object. It's it's not like you get one single definition of table and then if something violates a table property, it's no longer a table. That's just not our experience with how the world works. This is because human beings inherently were contextual creatures. We we contextually evaluate the data around us and we only understand things in context. We don't understand things as objects in and of themselves. Inherently, that's not how we experience the world. And we could understand this and I point people to this all the time. There's a TED talk on optical illusions. Optical illusions play on our contextual data processing. It tricks our brain into seeing things that probably it shouldn't be seen because our brains tend to contextually interpret the data that we receive. And uh, let's play the last part of this little TED talk and we, we could kind of see what I'm talking about here where where even something as black and white as color, you know, colors, you, you would think that uh, it's pretty standard. Oh, this is blue and this is yellow. Well, it's not quite so. Our colors that we see are contextually derived. We don't see the same colors. Even if it is the same color, the context defines the color rather than the color itself. There's, there's no object with a property of yellow. It's, it's interpreted in context. Now, what does all this mean? What this suggests is that no one is an outside observer of nature, okay? We're not defined by our essential properties, by the bits that make us up. We're defined by our environment and our interaction with that environment, by our ecology. And that ecology is necessarily relative, historical, and empirical, right? So what I'd like to finish with is this over here, because what I've been trying to do is really celebrate uncertainty, because I think only through uncertainty is there potential for understanding. So if some of you are still feeling a bit too certain, I'd like to do this one. So if we have the lights down, and what we have here, can everyone see 25 purple surfaces on your left and 25 call it yellowish surfaces on your right. So now what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna put the middle nine surfaces here under yellow illumination by simply putting a filter behind them. All right, now you can see that changes the light that's coming through there, right? Because now the light's going through a yellowish filter and then a purplish filter. And I'm gonna do this opposite on the left here. I'm gonna put the middle nine under a purplish light, okay? Now, some of you have noticed that the consequence is that the light coming through those middle nine on the right, or your left, is exactly the same as the light coming through the middle nine on your right. Agreed? Yes? Okay, so they are physically the same. Let's pull the covers off. Now remember, you know that the middle nine are exactly the same. Do they look the same? No. Question is, is that an illusion? And I'll leave you with that. So thank you very much. So the point of this experiment is that we see these objects and we see their color pretty distinctively. We could tell you the color, oh, this is yellow. But that same color put in a different context looks like a completely different color. This object does not have a color known as yellow. And we might be computer programmers. I'm a computer programmer. And so uh, we might be familiar with what objects are in computer programming. You have an object like this I got pulled up. This is a button. 
and it has different properties. It has maximum size, minimum size, uh, different paddings and uh, textures, and and it has actions when you click it. So it's an object. It's a distinct object that has these very distinct properties. These these categories. Uh, maybe maybe our Del Tuggy friend he thinks that uh, the divinity that's an object, and to meet this category object of divinity, it must have deathlessness or immortality. It must have uh, omniscience or whatever other properties he has. He, he sees divinity as an object in itself that you must hit those different attributes in order to be divine, rather than what we just experienced with the color where, you know, it, it's contextually defined, that uh, there's there's no hard and fast categories. Even in computer programming, what we're seeing is an illusion. Really, if you go look at the raw data of any computer program, it's all ones and zeros. It's it's all bits. The only reason that we see objects eventually is because the computer's interpretation of this raw data, data that we couldn't make heads or tails of, data that we couldn't define hard and fast objects, the, the computer interpretation of this raw data, this, this indistinguishable data, creates objects, uh, creates optical illusions in our mind that we can call an object, that we could uh, put form to. Uh, it, it, even in computer programming, there's no hard and fast categories. The next concept I'm going to pull you over to is the concept of the ship of thesis. And in, in philosophy, this is a ship. It's a thought experiment. Uh, there's a ship, and it's uh, probably Odysseus's ship on his, his journey. And, and uh, the people want to preserve it. And so they take the wooden planks out that are rotting, and they replace it with others. And eventually you end up replacing every single plank because every single plank at some point begins rotting. And once you completely replace every single plank in the ship, is it the same ship? Does it retain its identity? And one thing I'd like to point you to is uh, not that there's uh, uh, people haven't given answers to this, but how many answers people have given as resolutions to this problem? Uh, look at this. There's there's ten different resolutions uh, to this problem. Just the number of explanations of people's attempts to deal with this problem of identity tells us something about the nature of reality that we as human beings we have a lot of trouble figuring out what exactly is a category what exactly is an object we 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 don't quite know and go into facebook real quick over on uh, the god is open facebook page i ran a couple thought experiments along the same lines this, this these are questions about categorizations what makes you you and uh, in Star Trek, now Star Trek's is fiction, um, there's these things called uh, transporters. And what these transporters do is you step in one side, it breaks down all the molecules, and they, it sends the pattern over to a transporter somewhere else that it builds up a new you. Well, is that a new you that steps out on the other side, or is the, are you dead, and is that a new you? And uh, there's, there's different solutions to this problem. Uh, most people pick the option that a new copy of you and the old you has died. That you stepping in this transporter and being dissected here kills you and creates a new you over here. But not everyone thinks so. Some people think that's the same you. And complicating this, uh, Robert Hansen had a tweet that uh, stated, what if the same you steps out of the first transporter and a different you st steps out of the transporter at the other location? Which one's you? And the most of his respondents, there's uh, 2,500 votes. Most of his respondents stated that both are you. They got this theory, this category, that if there's an exact copy of you somewhere else in the universe that steps out of a transporter, at the same time you step out of a transporter somewhere else, 
they are both you. This, this, this illustrates this problem of categories that we as human beings run into. One last thought experiment before we move on. This is going to be a pretty important thought experiment for understanding understanding the problems with uh, Dale Tuggy's position about categories. And this is the problem of X-Men, Jamie Madrox. Now, now I'm a big uh, Age of Apocalypse fan. And in the Age of Apocalypse th- series, there's this mutant. And his ability is to, when he comes in contact with anything, if he's like hit or something, that he duplicates. He, he splits in two. Now there's two of him. And one seems to be subservient to the other, and they could act uh, with the same will. It seems at times they they have uh, one accord, but they could act separately. They they're they're like different individuals in in the case that they have different thoughts, different experiences, and he can reabsorb these at will, absorbing their experiences and their identities back into him. So when this happens, uh, in this thought experiment, uh, is this? This new Madrox, is that a different individual than the primary? Is it the same? What's going on there? In this uh, thought experiment, uh, most of our voters, they picked another person that might be a little little swayed by uh, just just the nature of this group being an open theist group. But I have always thought about it as they're all the same person, even though they have separate wills. They have semi-separate identities, but they're kind of acting in unison, and they're kind of acting as subservient to one master, if you will, the master copy. They're all the same person, regardless or not whether they can fight with each other, have conflicts with each other, have different thoughts and ideas than each other. They still all are Jamie Madrox in this thought experiment. This is how I've always viewed this character for as long as I remember. So this is interesting. So what we've we've just maybe discovered is that human beings are easily able to classify different people with different features as the same person depending on the circumstances. It's not hard and fast. And what Dale Tuggy is going to do, he's going to argue platonic categories that there are hard and fast distinctions and that makes things separate beings. That means one thing's not each other. Let's just listen to his arguments and look at his assumptions that he brings onto not only the Bible, but onto reality as we we experience it. And again, that's not Semitic religion. Uh, I have pulled up uh, various books by authors on the religions of the Semites. And they don't take Dale Tuggy's position about his characterizations, and we'll pull those up as we go along. They more take my approach that categories are flexible. Reality is uh, it's, it's not defined in hard and fast categories, but it's defined contextually by experiences. There's overlap. There's not hard and fast objects in the known world. It's time to set aside confused and confusing post-biblical theories in favor of simple biblical claims about God and his unique son. I agree. So we should look towards Semitic religions, Semitic definitions of what it means to be divine, Semitic definitions of of personhood or what it means to be one object rather than the other. Uh, I'd I'd point you to uh, The Bodies of God by Benjamin Summers, which argues that in Semitic religions, of course, a god could have multiple bodies, uh, multiple wills uh, acting independently of each other and still be the same God, as in our Jamie Madrox thought experiment. These are known Semitic categories, so don't discount them out of hand, Mr. Dr. Dale Tuggy. According to the Bible, Jesus is human and not divine. 
I will make my case based only on clear biblical teachings together with a few undeniable truths. While my opponent's theory will be based on reading between the lines of scripture, my Christology will be based on reading the lines. One who says that Jesus is God or Jesus is divine or Jesus has a divine nature may mean several different things. Some such claims are uncontroversial. To call something divine may just be to say that they're related in some important way to God. Thus, the earth is divine for it's God's handiwork. The scriptures are divine for they are inspired by God. And Jesus is divine for he's like God. All Christians accept that Jesus is divine in these ways. I'm, I'm going to add one to that. Man is divine. We are imagers of God. We share God's image. We have a spark of divinity in ourselves. We would do well to abandon these categories, these Platonic categories, where the physical cannot be divine. Uh, Moses steps on some land. The land is holy land. Remove your sandals because you are on holy land. The land itself is divine. The spiritual and the physical overlap throughout the Bible. Isaiah, he's brought up to uh, heaven in the body. Paul talks about people, whether in the body or the spirit, going to the third heaven. He doesn't know. Why? Because both are options. We're not living in a platonic world in which there's distinct categories of physical and divine. Rather, there's significant overlap. Overlap in our own lives. As Michael Heiser writes in his books, we are imagers of the divine. We have a spark of divinity in us. The human can be divine. They're, they're not opposite categories. But when people say that Jesus is God, often they are asserting the numerical sameness of Jesus and God. In other words, they're saying that Jesus and God are related the way that you are to yourself, or how Abram is related to Abraham. The one just is the other. Jesus is God and God is Jesus. To put it differently, the words God and Jesus are co-referring terms, like the Donald and Donald Trump. To numerically identify is to collapse what may seem like two beings into one being. It's to say that counting two beings, two things there, would be overcounting. So let's turn to our Madrox example. This, this guy, there's, there's a primary Madrox, and he could spawn duplicates of himself which are subservient to him. Uh, I, I would not claim necessarily that those duplicates are Madrox. I'd say that the prime is Madrox, although those duplicates are Madrox in a sense. So... Although they're not the prime, they are him. Uh, there's numerical sameness, even though the, I wouldn't call the duplicates the prime. Such a claim is demonstrably confused. It is self-evident that nothing can be a certain way and at the same time also not be that same way. When we discover any simultaneous qualitative difference, we realize we're dealing with two beings, not with one. So, so why does it have to be simultaneous? Like, for example, let's take me. Uh, I'm changing at every moment of every day. The me from three seconds ago is different than the me now. I got three seconds of extra experience under my belt. There are changes between me of now and me three seconds ago. Why am I the same being, but God can't have differences in himself at the same time and not be the same being. That doesn't even make any sense because my left hand's different than my right hand. There's differences between my left and right hand. I'd, you wouldn't say because there's differences in some aspects of me from some other aspect of me, that's not me anymore. 
your categorizations don't make sense. Uh, what you're what you're trying to do is you're trying to find an object with specific definite uh, uh, attributes, and then you're going to claim that one thing isn't that because of your arbitrary attributes that you force on this object. That's not the case. That's that's not how reality works. Seeing differences between them, a reader of the New Testament realizes that Peter and Paul are not the same being. Yes, they're similar in many ways. Both are men, both are apostles, both are heroes of faith. But things can be similar in countless ways while still being two. Just a single simultaneous difference, no matter how small, proves that we are dealing with two beings and not with one. Again, though, notice the arbitrary nature of what he's trying to define here. He's trying to say that uh, I have my category over here, and I'm going to arbitrarily uh, keep it separate from this category over here, and then I'm going to claim there's going to be differences, which makes one not the other. Which, again, Semitic religion, it doesn't bear testament to. In fact, there's bodily fluidity in Semitic religions. Let's pull up Benjamin Summers' The Bodies of God. Religious thinkers of the ancient Near East viewed gods and goddesses as radically unlike human beings in ways that may seem baffling to people of contemporary Western world. In the eyes of the Babylonians, Assyrians, Canaanites, Armenians, and Egyptians, a single deity could exist simultaneously in several bodies. Further, a deity could have a fragmented or ill-defined self, for gods were not fully distinct from each other, at least not of the time. By a self, I mean a discrete conscious entity that is conscious of its discrete nature. We can contrast this perspective with one another, which is evident in the data from archaic and classical Greece. Greek culture provides no evidence that multiple objects could contain the presence of a particular deity at any one moment. Ancient Greek religion furthermore maintained that deities' selves were consistently distinct from each other. Each culture's perception of God's bodies then reflects its understanding of God's selves. These two ways of perceiving divinity presented with, with two types of answers to the questions. Are deities fundamentally similar to human or fundamentally different from them? For the Greeks, a god is like a human being, had a discrete body and a discrete self. For the Near Eastern religions, gods could have multiple bodies and fluid selves. Greek religion assumed a basic resemblance between mortals and immortals in this respect, whereas ancient Near East religions posited a radical contrast between them. So this category of thinking, this uh, Jamie Maddox category of thinking, where a, a god can have multiple bodies, multiple consciousnesses, and still be the same god, this is radically different from what Dale Tuggy is trying to tell us is the biblical picture of God. He's trying to impose Greek categories, and I would say particularly Platonistic categories rather than necessarily even ancient uh, Greek polytheistic categories, even though those bear similarity to the categories he's trying to tell us. I don't think the Bible bears this out. I think the Bible and the other ancient Semitic religions in which the Bible context is derived, this is, this is the context of the Bible. Yahweh could be both in heaven and at the divine temple at the same time in, in maybe this different manners that there, there could be uh, let's take, for example, the G Genesis 18 account, which three men approach Abraham. And in this book, Benjamin Summer points out that we don't know whether one, two, or three of those individuals are Yahweh in the text. We just don't know. It would be a mistake to make an assumption on that point. Dale Tuggy assumes these categories out. He, he, on the face value, rejects them. He it doesn't fit his worldview of how the world functions and works. But as we've seen, 
Uh, categories are flexible. We interpret de- categories loosely in just our day-to-day dealing. We can't even be certain of an object's color without contextual surrounding to give us the data of what that color is in that object. We are contextual creatures. We're not object-based creatures. We don't see the world in uh, Platonistic forms, ascribing absolute properties to absolute objects. Instead, we see the world in a more fluid sense, in a contextual sense. We're contextual beings. Now, in the New Testament, God and Jesus have many traits in common. Both are loving, forgiving, and pursuing our salvation. Both are working to advance the kingdom of God and to reveal God's ways to us. They're so alike that Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And Paul says that Jesus is the image of God. But in the New Testament, God and Jesus also differ in many ways. Jesus was tempted. In contrast, the New Testament says God can't be tempted. All right, let's talk about that real quick. So let's talk about how language works. And this is our same criticisms of Chris Date is he doesn't understand the use and function of language. They'll come across their little proof text and they'll they'll pull it out and they'll say, look at here, God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Well, we got some serious problems because God tempts people throughout the Bible. Deuteronomy 13.3, you shall not listen to the words of the prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. 2 Samuel 24.1, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and number Israel and Judah, for which he punishes David. So we run into, in the Bible, what seems like all-encompassing statements, uh, that uh, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, or God is not a man that he should repent. And and they seem to us maybe to be all-encompassing, but typically... Uh, when we're reading literature like this, a lot of these phrases are hyperbolic in nature. They're, they're expressing a general rule of thumb that is most always true, although there could be exceptions to the rule. They're, they're not hard and fast rules. They're not properties of deity as uh, what Dale Tuggy is going to take. He's going to look and say, this is one of the features of God, that he cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Well, is is that the case? Is that the case? Or is that a generalization? Or is that a general claim about the character of God and not an inherent hard and fast attribute that can never have any exceptions? That's the question. And you can't just assume one reading over the other. And so what those people are going to do who want to take this as hard and fast and uh, they want to take it as all-encompassing is they have to find a way to mitigate these texts in which God does tempt people, which God does test people, which God does uh, lead people uh, towards uh, destruction. You know, there there are what we would consider tempting. What does this mean? What is it communicating to us? Uh, is this a hard and fast rule? These are the questions we need to ask. We can't take a small statement like this and just assume absolutes onto it. That's not, that's not how language works. That's not how language functions. Jesus died on a cross. But the New Testament assumes that God has never died because it implies that he's essentially immortal, in principle, incapable of death. Okay, so note this. Dale Tuggy wants to ascribe another property to deity, and that is the undyingness and everlastingness. And we'll find a lot of phrases like this ascribed to God throughout the Bible. And yes, that's true. Uh, You do have God from everlasting to everlasting. God's not going to die, not going to be defeated. 
What we don't see in the text is mechanism. Why won't God die? Is it because that's an essential property as Del Tuggy is going to make it out to be? Or is it more of a power claim that no God can overthrow Yahweh because Yahweh is the primary God and he's more powerful than anyone and no one has a chance at uh, overthrowing him? Is that the reason that God is immortal? We, we find some interesting uh, parallel type of uh, absolute language in parallel religions. Let's, let's turn to Marduk. We all know the Marduk story, or we should if you listen to the Numa Elish episode. Marduk is a created god. Marduk is not, uh, he wasn't uh, all existing from all eternity or anything like that. But Marduk is created, and he's a created god who's called perfect, and he's, his, his will said to be unchangeable because he rises to prominence. He overtakes and kills, he kills uh, a primary god, one of these pre-existing gods that helped create the universe. He kills that god and rises to prominence uh, in, in the Babylonian mythos, in the Enuma Elish. And part of the meaning of his name is that he's immortal. So let's read this. The name Marduk was probably pronounced Martuk. The etymology of the name Marduk is conjectured as derived from Atmar Utu, immortal son of Utu. So what does this immortal mean? Does it mean that there in no way can he die in any type of setting, but that's not true. We we learn from the Marduk myths that these gods rise and fall. They fight each other. They could be blinked out of his existence. In fact, this is a very common Semitic idea that immortal gods can in fact die. So let's turn to Mark Smith, and Mark Smith is talking about uh, properties of the gods, and one of them is immortality. These are this is in his book, The Origins of Biblical Monotheism. And he starts talking about immortality, and he quotes this paragraph here by this other smith. We're going to be talking about three different uh, smiths in this episode, and none of them are going to be Joseph Smith. One of them is going to be Mark Smith, a biblical scholar. One of them is going to be William Smith, a Semitic scholar. And one of them is going to be who Mark Smith is quoting, J.C. Smith, about the idea that uh, in Semitic religions, God could die. Even immortal gods can die. He writes this. This is J.C. Smith. Despite the shock this fact may deal to modern Western religious sensibilities, it is commonplace within the history of religions that immortality is not a prime characteristic of divinity, gods die. Nor is the concomitment of omnipresence a widespread requisite, gods disappear. The putative category of dying and rising deities thus takes its place within a larger category of dying gods and even a larger category of disappearing deities. Some of these divine figures simply disappear. Some disappear only return in near or distant future. Some disappear and reappear with monotonous frequency. Gods die. Uh, that's it's, it's typically what we find in the ancient literature. We find this concept even advocated in the biblical text if we turn to Psalms 82. Psalms 82, this is God talking. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you, like men, shall die, fall like any prince. So these are gods, and these gods will die. Uh, being immortal is not an inherent property of deity, even within the Bible. So what do these texts mean that God is everlasting? Does it mean it's an inherent property of divinity? It doesn't seem like that. Or does it mean that God is so powerful that no God's going to rise up and overthrow him. That uh, mechanically, mechanistically, he cannot be overthrown and thus cannot die. He's eternal from everlasting to everlasting by the property of being the primary, unstoppable, most powerful God in existence. Does that mean that uh, this, these categories 
rule out any deicide or like uh, de-suicide where, where maybe a god can kill themselves. I don't think it necessarily rules out categories like that. I, I don't think that's what these texts are going for. Instead, they're uh, emphasizing God's uniqueness, God's uh, absoluteness, his, his, his power, his primacy over all the other deities that exist out there. That's what this is probably illustrating rather than rather than Del Tuggy's idea of these are divine attributes. These are attributes that characterize uh, divinity. Absolutely. That if someone doesn't have this attribute, that person or thing is not divine anymore. I don't think that's a biblical category. And we see that play out here. Gods will die in the Bible. Psalms 82. Yeah, you're divine. You can die. I mentioned another Smith. We said we're going to talk about three different Smiths. We're going to turn to William Smith in his lectures on the Semites, on the religion of the Semites, and see what he says about the, this idea of giving characteristics to deity, uh, building doctrines around the idea of God. This was just not a part of Semitic religion. This is these these doctrines, these creeds, these uh, ideas of doctrine just did not exist in their thought process. Our modern habit is to look at religion from the side of belief rather than of practice. For down to comparatively recent times, almost the only forms of religion seriously studied in Europe have been those of various Christian churches, and all parts of Christendom are agreed that ritual is important only in connection with its interpretation. Thus, the study of religion has meant mainly the study of Christian beliefs, and instruction in religion has habitually begun with the creed, religious duties, being presented to the learner as flowing from the dogmatic truths he is taught to accept. All this seems to us so much a matter of course that when we approach some strange or antique religion, we naturally assume that here also our first business is to search for a creed and find in it a key to ritual and practice. But the antique religions had for the most part no creed. They consisted entirely of instructions and practices. No doubt what men will not habitually follow certain practices without attaching a meaning to them. But as a rule, we find that while the practice was rigorously fixed, the meaning attached to it was extremely vague in the same right was explained by different people in different ways without any question of orthodoxy or heterodoxy arising in consequence. In ancient Greece, for example, certain things were done at the temple and people were agreed that it would be impious not to do them. But if you asked why they were done, you'd probably have several different mutually contradictory explanations from different persons and no one would have had thought it a matter of the least religious importance. Which of these you choose to adopt? Indeed, the explanations offered would not have been of a kind to stir any strong feeling. For the most cases, they would have been merely different stories as to the circumstances under which the rite first came to be established by the command or by the direct example of the god. The rite, in short, was connected not with the dogma, but with a myth. In all the antique religions, mythology takes the place of dogma, that is, the sacred lore of priests and people, so far as it does not consist of mere rules for the performance of religious acts, assumes the form of the stories about the gods, and these stories afford the only explanation that is offered of the precepts of religion and prescribed rules of ritual. So what we're learning about the religion of the Semites is that they did not hold hard and fast categories of this is what it meant to be God. This and not this. This is the property. If it doesn't have that property, it's not divine. Rather, everything is loosely defined. It, it's flexibly defined. And even, even immortality, which is commonly ascribed to deities, is something that's loose. Gods can die 
with systematic frequency in these ancient religion of the Semites, gods which are said to be immortal. Flipping back to Mark Smith, uh, our first Mark that we turned to, who quoted the other Mark before we went to the third Mark, we're going back to Mark Smith, and he describes loosely in the Semite religions what are the traits of deity, as found within biblical monotheism. And uh, here's, here's his list. It might differ a little bit, a little bit from Dale Tuggies. And, and he admits they're not hard and fast categories. Size and strength. Typically, the deities are described as supersized humans. They're, there's large bodies. In Mark Smith's other books, Where the Gods Are, Spatial Dimensions of Anthropomorphism in the Biblical World, he talks about the times in the text where Yahweh is given uh, maybe a larger-than-life body within the biblical text. This is not exclusively the body given to Yahweh within the Bible. There's He identifies three different types of bodies that are attributed to Yahweh within the text of the Bible, um, some of which are maybe more ethereal than others. But there is a, a defining characteristic of size and strength. Uh, the gods were bigger. The gods had more strength. Body and gender. Typically, the gods are given body and gender. Yahweh is a masculine god throughout the text of the Bible. Holiness, so set-apartness, that's one. And then, of course, immortality, which we already quoted him on. None of these none of these are hard and fast categories. These are characteristics that are not necessarily inherent of divinity in itself. It's just like we're identifying perhaps a cat. We, we loosely categorize things, and the cats may or may not hold several, multiple of those features, but as long as they loosely fit these definitions, then they're categorized as that category. So notice the different thought process between the ancient scholars of Semite religion, uh, there are different marks, we got the three different marks, and Dr. Dale Tuggy, who wants very hard and fast categories. He wants to look at these proof texts and make definitive claims that uh, meet his his idea of how we characterize what deity is. The New Testament is explicit that like you and me, Jesus has a God over him, the one God. But the monotheistic Jewish assumption is that the one God is subject to no one. The New Testament, Jesus gets his calling, his commission, his power, and his authority from the one God. This is no surprise since the one like a son of man in the prophecy of Daniel 7, which the New Testament understands to be the Messiah, is brought before God and given things which God has long had, namely dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Turning again to Benjamin Summer, let's read this paragraph. Somehow it was possible for various local and heavily manifestations of a single God to be effectively identical with each other and also distinct from each other. This phenomenon indicates the first sort of fluidity of divine selfhood I treat here. The deities I've discussed have a self distinct from other deities. Ishtar is not the same goddess as, say, Zarpenetua or Erskigal, and Adad is not Nurgal. Yet in the cases we have examined, that self seems to be fragmented. Ishtar of Arbella acts independently of Ishtar of Nineveh, and both of them act independently of Venus, yet their independent actions are completely parallel to each other. We might borrow a phrase from Indian culture to describe these local Ishtars as something like avatars of Ishtar. The term is appropriate because it implies a certain diminution of the deity when he or she assumes the form of an avatar, or avatars usually are understood to only be partial manifestations of the deity who assumes them. Again, these are very real categories that Del Tuggy just assumes out of existence because he wants certain very absolute categories 
for who God is and how God functions and what defines reality, what defines objects. That's just not what we experience in ancient Semitic religions and, as I argue, within our normal course of reality. We, do, we, don't, we don't encounter these distinct objects, these distinct properties that set one object apart from each other in any non-arbitrary sense. Similar vision is found in Revelation 5, which portrays the exaltation of the risen Jesus. In contrast, since any cosmos there is must be created and ruled by God, God can't in any sense get his position, power, or authority from anyone else. If there's a creation, God can't fail to be in charge of it. So in principle, he can't be promoted to being in charge of it. Remember, one difference, big or small, proves that they are numerically two beings. And we That's false. False. And, uh, you know, we, we know that right now because of who we are. My left hand is different than my right hand. There's differences between parts of me. Uh, does their differences in parts mean I'm not one? Uh, you, you need to better define what you're trying to say because it's very presumptuous. You're presuming your conclusions. You're begging the question, so to speak. Why can't divine fluidity, bodily fluidity, as we see throughout ancient Semite religions in the culture that uh, Yahwehism grew up in, why can't that be an acceptable category of thought and classification? Why can't there be one God, one Ishtar, even though Ishtars could be fragmented? There could be different independent Ishtars working uh, as for a supreme Ishtar. This is back to our Jamie Madrex example, where there's one Madrex that splits and fragments, although there is a primary that could be absorbed and reabsorbed. Why can't these categories be applied to biblical passages? And Benjamin Summers argues that, yeah, in the Bible, these categories are present. We do find indications that bodily fluidity is a biblical value that was embraced by the writers of the Bible. And we've just noted many differences. Yes, I am belaboring the obvious. Sadly, Not obvious. What is obvious that God and his son are two beings is continually obscured by confused human traditions. Now, these traditions counsel a snappy comeback here. Of course, Jesus and God are not the same in every way. Jesus and God, that is to say Jesus and the Father, are the same being but different persons. But this late 4th century idea that there are multiple equally divine persons in the one God has no, has no place in interpreting 1st century writings. The New Testament does not leave us to free to speculate that the Father and the Son are two divine persons in God, because it tells us explicitly what sorts of beings they are. They are a God and a man. So I'll grant Del Tuggy that uh, pretty early on in the history of Christianity, these divine Platonistic categories were adopted. We see them, uh, no fact, matter-of-factly in the Gnostics when they t start talking about properties of God. But it's not apparent in the New Testament that these properties are fully adopted. They might be partially adopted uh, in some sense. You start seeing uh, some divine scripts or divine attribute listings in a very limited sense in the New Testament, but not to the extent that you're going to find them in the Gnostic texts. Uh, so you're going to have to show that uh, the categories of the New Testament are inherently different than the categories of the Old Testament. The categories of the Old Testament don't adhere to the categories that you're trying to impose on the Bible. These hard and fast definitions, these, these attributes of divinity that you just assume on divinity, you assume that they're inherent to the divinity rather than 
loose characteristics of what we experience of divinity. Immortality. Uh, there's We are going to be given immortality in the New Testament. Uh, immortality is going to given, be given to people. What, what does that mean? Are, are we gods? Is, is that inherent to uh, what we are as people, that, that we are gods? Or is that just a loose characterization and actually we can actually be blinked out of existence uh, even though we have eternality, as the New Testament says that we will be granted, and we're not gods, even though we have this property. It's not exclusive to the divine, and it doesn't have to be this absolute category that can't be undone. The eternal can die in the Bible. The New Testament always and everywhere portrays Jesus as a real man, never as a God-man, never as God incarnate, never as God the Son. John has Jesus describe himself as a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. In so again, uh, man is not opposite of the divine. There, we, we don't find those categories being pushed anywhere except for platonic categories where the material world is separate from the divine. There's a hard and fast uh, cut where one can't be the other. Men can be divine. We ourselves as human beings have the spark of the divine in us. What Paul writes about Jesus is interesting in Colossians 2. And as I argue uh, multiple places uh, in, in my book and in uh, my program on Colossians 2, is that this is really a response to the Gnostics who think that the divine can't be physical and the physical can't be divine. And he writes, the fullness of God dwells bodily. It seems to me to be a direct response to these Gnostic ideas, which try to separate the physical from the divine. He's saying, no, the fullness of God dwelled physically. The physical is the divine. He's rejecting their categories. In short, these verses that he's pulling up as his proof text, where it describes Jesus as a man, doesn't quite prove what he thinks he's trying to prove. He, it only proves that because he assumes his categories. This whole podcast is about categories. Categorically, Dale Tuggy is incorrect in his assessment of the Bible. First Timothy, we read that there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And Paul sometimes compares and contrasts Jesus with Adam. As when he writes, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven, that is, Jesus, when, like Jesus, we believers are raised to immortality. So let's let's do the same uh, Dale Tuggy proof texting about Yahweh. Let's turn to Genesis 18. And Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And then they go on to have a dinner together. This is what happens. Yahweh is described as a man. See? Uh, Yahweh is not divine. Yahweh is not God. Uh, my name is Dale Tuggy. No, 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 no. That's that's not what's going on here. You could call God a man. You can. People might say, oh, that just means he's kind of in the image of the man. Well, that that's an assumption you're bringing to the text. And the Bible doesn't give those apologies for calling God a man. It doesn't. It almost assumes in Genesis 18.3 that uh, Abraham is instantly aware of who this man is, a Yahweh God. Uh, the Bible the Bible's not making these hard and fast distinctions that Dale Tuggy would like to make, and that's something he's got to wrestle with in his proof texting. His proof texting in which Jesus is described as a man. 
And how is that inaccurate, especially if there's overlap in divinity and physical? Man, man, man. This is explicit. And these writers are not anxious to follow up with and also divine because that's not their view. The central and repeated thesis of all four Gospels is that Jesus is God's Christ, his Messiah, which implies being human. The Messiah was predicted to be a literal descendant of David and to be a prophet like Moses, both of which imply being a real human being. The New Testament Jesus is miraculously conceived in and born to a human woman. He grows up and he prematurely dies. So notice the assumed categories. He, he, he assumes by making these statements that people could agree with, that automatically assumes that Jesus is not divine, which is, is not clear at all. It's, it's, not, it's not stated by the Bible. It's not necessarily a claim that the Bible makes. It's an assumed category onto the biblical text. And we, sh we should do well to try to put ourselves in a Semitic mind frame where those categories might not hold. Although those categories might sound strange to us as, as modern readers, they're not necessary. They're, these are not arguments he's making. These are appeals to modern sensibilities. He puts his trust in God and regularly prays to God. The letter to the Hebrews explains that it was fitting that we should be reconciled to God by the sacrificial ministry of a fellow human being. It says, for the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. According to the New Testament, Jesus is a Jewish man with the uniquely high call of being God's Messiah. Now, what sort of being is the father? Does the New Testament teach that he is one of three divine persons within the one God? No, the father just is God himself, the God of the Jews, the Lord of the Old Testament, the only true God. This is assumed in all New Testament writings. Uh, so what he does here is more proof texting, which doesn't quite state his view. I was talking to Quaco L, and who's, he's a Mormon, and he points out that these God is one texts uh, are used by people with radically different ideas about God, all as proof texts for their ideas about God. It's an interesting phenomenon that we, we see where Trinitarians will claim that uh, God is one, means the Trinity is true. Uh, some people will claim that those verses mean definitively that the Trinity is not true. Here's Dale Tuggy arguing that this means his categories are true. How does that defeat maybe the Jamie Maddox category that I proposed, which I argue is a Semitic category of thought in which the divine can be splintered, the divine can have separate wills, but yet be one God? Or even the Kwaku L view that it's, it's just about a covenantal relationship, that uh, you're only supposed to worship this one God being uh, Israelite in a covenantal relationship. There's alternative views to your text. And just quoting a fragmented text out of context without any clarifying context that, that specifies your view above alternate explanations, it's not an argument. You're not giving an argument. What you're doing is, uh, shotgunning proof texts that you just assume your argument into. You're, you're begging the question with these proof texts. Writings and generally doesn't need to be stated. A careful reader will note that these writers normally use the terms God and the Father interchangeably because they think that typically those terms co-refer. And the fourth gospel, 
pointedly clarifies just who the father is in case you were thinking of confusing him with his son. When arguing with his Jewish opponents, Jesus refers to the father as he of whom you say he is our God. This reveals their shared assumption that the God of the Jews is the father himself. Elsewhere, John has Jesus refer to the father as the one who alone is God and as the only true God. Towards the end, Jesus says that this same father is both his God and yours. In some, the New Testament never states, implies, or assumes the existence of a tripersonal God, but it everywhere assumes and sometimes clearly states that the only God is the Father. Again, the, the assumed categories. Uh, we, we went over the categories, first of all, to just try to uh, show you his assumptions he's bringing to the text, how, how he reads the Bible. Uh, he reads it, it says, God is one. Okay, so that means my category of what one must be, and it's these Platonic categories. And it's not this uh, more of a fragmented category or this loose categorization or this uh, divine fluidity. He just rules out of hand that it can't be that. Why? Why? Because he's really wedded to his ideas, his categories that he wants to oppose on the text. They're, those are not the only readings of those verses. Uh, they're not necessarily the default Semitic re readings. They, they're possible readings. They're possible readings, but not the only ones. You're assuming your categories onto the text. Now, when it comes to thinking about Jesus, present-day evangelicals are divided. On the popular level of preaching and apologetics, Jesus and God are simply confused for one another. They're confused together. Their similarities are noted and their differences are ignored, while the shibboleth that Jesus is God is intoned. The Father is thanked for dying for us, and the word Jesus is used as if it were God's proper name. Yeah, people probably shouldn't be doing those types of things. I mean, uh, even in a fragmented situation, you wouldn't want to try to confuse titles. You'd probably want to speak with specificity. Uh, I, I typically pray to the Father, and then Jesus is to be the mediator. So it's something like, in Jesus' name, seems to be adequate for prayers. But none of those negate the scenario that we might be dealing with here of divine fragmentation or bodily fluidity, a multiple beings who are one being, a Semitic idea. None of these arguments negate that category. It's just, it's just not, he's not even considered. And I, I don't even think Chris Date considers that possibility because Chris Date's a, a traditional classical Trinitarian who believes in the hypostatic union, which also imports Platonistic categories. To me, this seems like a Platonistic uh, versus Platonistic debate where they're <laughs> kind of like the Servetus-Calvin uh, debate where they're debating over Platonistic categories. They're, they're both fundamentally, their worldviews are based in what seems to me a series of thought that's not germane to the Bible. They're fighting over third century ideas. They're fighting over enlightenment ideas. They're not fighting over biblical categories. And this is lamentable confusion. But there are also sophisticates, various seminary graduates, armchair theologians, and of course, professional theologians and scholars in related areas. These would consider the numerical identification of Jesus and God, the collapsing of the two, to be an oversimplification of a grand tradition deriving especially from a council of Catholic bishops held at Chalcedon in the year 451. These elites will say Jesus is God, but they typically mean this as shorthand for the claim that Jesus has a divine nature. 
They follow a post-biblical tradition that requires us to say that there are two natures in Jesus, a human nature and a divine nature, all within the one Christ. Sober critical thinking is called for here, not indulgent appeals to mystery. This two natures language can mean a couple of different things, but with one exception, my objection to these theories is that they do not present us with a real man. To understand these theories, we need to disambiguate a key term. In ancient philosophy and theology, a nature can be an individual being, a single entity like you or a dog or God, or a nature can be the defining essential qualities of some sort of thing. Let's note again what he's doing. He's turning to philosophy, and then he's using that to define things like nature. Now, Paul uses the word nature, but how does he use the word nature? Uh, what's his typical usage? We're turning to Brian Ingrafia's book, Postmodern Theory and Biblical Theology. Remember, Dale Tuggy's trying to talk to us about what the nature of man really means. And are these categories actually accepted by Paul? Or is Paul's distinction between uh, the physical man and the spiritual man are those different distinctions? Are, is, is he making these, these nature distinctions that Dale Tuggy is arguing that that's what nature means when, when Paul might use the word nature? Well, let's read this. But biblical thought, because it is based on Hebraic and not the Greek conception of humanity, does not understand human beings as dualism of body and spirit as Platonism does, nor as dualism of mind and body as Descartes does. Paul's division between the flesh and the spirit is not a metaphysical, ontological dualism, but rather a redemptive, eschatological separation between those alienated from God and those reconciled to God. Moving on. But similar qualification must be made about the so-called theological anthropology of the Apostle Paul. Paul is in no way interested in developing an independent definition of the essence or constitution of man. He is not interested in humanity as an end in itself, but in humanity as created and redeemed by God. Here we can make a preliminary connection between Paul and Heidegger, just as Heidegger is interested in Dyson only in its relation to being including the being and world and being with others, so is Paul interested in Anthropos only in its relationship to God and how this relationship should determine the ways one conducts him or herself in the world, especially towards others. Paul's descriptions of man are not, he's not trying to define what man is when he's talking about the nature of man. Instead, he's trying to describe our relationship to God. That's what he talks about when he's talking about the difference between the physical and the spiritual. Those, those are Paul's categories. In the first sense, you are a nature. In the second sense, a nature is a quality or set of qualities that you have. Now, what's being asserted about the Son of God here when it's said that he has two natures? Let's consider the options. To say that in Christ, there are a divine nature and a human nature. So we're going to kind of skip past this point because he's just criticizing the hypostatic union. So we will be skipping this part. For the sake of time, we're not, we're not too far here. But why think the Bible teaches Jesus to also have divine nature? The most obvious and straightforward way of proving this would be to list out all the qualities which are included in divine nature, then show that the Bible teaches Jesus to have each of these qualities. So let's use uh, Mark Smith's categories. Okay, so uh, immortality, that's not necessarily immortality. Okay, uh, sure. Um, I, I guess even we are attributed that in the Bible. Uh, superhuman strength and size. I don't know if uh, he fits that. Uh, or uh, how about uh, 
A gender? Well, he does have gender, so he's got that going for him. So the qualities that Del Tuggy is about to list off is his own philosophy. It's not biblical philosophy. It's not biblical categories. Of course, we've seen how he uses his proof texts. He pulls a, a small statement and uh, just assumes it's not hyperbolic, assumes it's not a generalization, assumes it's, it's actually a metaphysical statement about the ontology and the inherent attributes of what it means to be divine. He assumes those readings on the text, whereas similar texts in, in other literature or even throughout the Bible in our counterproof text episode where it talks about man knowing all things and uh, maybe man being able to do all things uh, is uh, man's omnipotence and man's uh, unchangeability, immutability, man's uh, omniscience. Uh, he'll He'll read those statements as normal hyperbole, but the statements about God just like the Calvinists, he really wants to be part of his metaphysics, instantly adopts it as his metaphysics, and just assumes assumes alternative readings out of existence. So here's his list of categories. But it's unclear exactly which and how many qualities this would be. Worse, for some divine qualities, the Bible straightforwardly implies that Jesus lacks them. Such qualities including essential omniscience, essential immortality, and essential untemptability. Again, those, those are assumed categories that we don't find from the Bible. They're categories that go against what we are told in Mark Smith and in uh, William Smith. William Smith says that there are no categories like this. Uh, all these doctrines are loose and sporadic, and what really ties religion together is the mythology, which takes precedence, and the ritual, which takes precedence, not the divine attributes. The divine attributes, caring about these things over the ritual and myth is, is not ancient Semitic religion. What, what that is are Platonic categories, those are Greek categories, and those are Greek concerns. And so fundamentally, you're misreading the Bible when you're trying to read them with these Greek concerns. Uh, Mark Smith, his attributes of divinity are way different than yours. Your, yours is untemptability. Yours is, uh, what, omnipresence, uh, being everywhere. It, th those are inherent divine attributes. And then if Jesus doesn't have them, then Jesus can't be divine. What about all these other gods that are described in the Bible as being gods? And who can die and who are definitely not everywhere and, and definitely don't have a saiety. What about these gods? They, they don't quite meet what you're trying to prove here. Now, categorically, the Bible is not on the same level as you. The other qualities most Christian theologians and, and other qualities most Christian theologians ascribe to God are not mentioned in connection with Jesus. And there aren't any even, there aren't even passages that sound like they're attributing uh, Aseity, or necessary existence, or essential omnipotence, or essential omnipresence to him. So there, there aren't even passages to argue about. I hate to belabor the point, but it shows at what disconnect Del Tuggy has with the biblical text. All those categories are not biblical concerns. These are not categories that the Bible assumes are necessary features of divinity. These are philosophical concepts that are imposed on the Bible. Again, Biblical theology is done from the ground up, as Walter Brueggemann writes, that you get the generalities from the specifics. You don't know God knows all things because it's a central attribute of divine being. Uh, you get his all-knowing nature from various texts, various uh, 
various narratives in which God does know all things, various sayings where, where you could accumulate these details about God's personality and his characteristics from the text. God is not all-powerful because that's an essential part of who he is. God is powerful because we see his powerful acts. You add up the details to get the generalities, not the other way around. You're doing your theology backwards when you're coming to the text from this very Greek perspective. More creativity is called for, and human speculations are nothing if not creative. The traditional way of deriving the deity of Christ from the Bible is to fasten on some actual New Testament statement and then infer by means of a general assumption that Jesus, therefore, must have divine nature. Such arguments are valid, which means that if one and two are true, then three would also be true. The problem with such arguments is premise two, which on close inspection is seen to be a mere human tradition, which is supported neither by reason nor by biblical revelation. Perhaps the most popular argument of this type is, one, Jesus is appropriately referred to as God. Two, only a being with divine nature could be appropriately referred to as God. Three, conclusion, therefore Jesus has divine nature. According to the Bible, the second premise here is false. In John 10, Jesus himself points out that beings other than God can be called gods. And Psalm 45, quoted in Hebrews 1, addresses a human king with the words, Your throne, O God, endures forever. Yet it goes on to say that God, your God, has anointed you. Right, so this one who's called God has a God over him in the original context, a uh, king. So in that He's right in a sense and he's wrong in a sense. Of course, uh, language has semantic ranges of meaning. And so someone can be called a god who's not necessarily a god. You might be able to say, oh, that rock star is, is a god. And people realize what you're talking about. You're not talking about that rock star is literally a god. But that, that word is a metaphor or that word communicates something about his status, that people regard him with almost maybe a divine reverence or or give him the respect as one might afford a god. That's but also might mean divinity. It depends on context. Of course, language is contextually based. So you have to look at those instances and try to figure out what are going on in those particular instances uh, per each quote. The one I turn to is Colossians 2, which I think is a direct reaction to the Gnostics who believe these Platonistic categories of the distinctions between the divine and physical. I think that's what Paul is combating there. So I think the context gives Jesus divinity in that context that the, the divine fully dwells physically. I think that that is clear. I think that's, I, I use clear with little bit of hesitation because typically when people say that that's clear from the Bible uh, they're totally fabricating whatever they're saying but I, I think that's what's going on there is they're addressing Gnostic Platonistic concerns that's directly being combated with these categories you, you see indications of this throughout Colossians 2 is references to maybe the the allegory of the caves these, these shadows the self self deprivation that you see commonplace in Platonistic religions where oh you have to deprive yourself of of everything and, and enter a meditative state to reach divine actuality these things are fought in Colossians too 
we're going pretty long here, so I'm going to wrap us up because, uh, you know, this, this takes a lot of time. Fundamentally, my issues with Del Tuggy is his assumed categories, categories which I see as Greek categories, categories which I see as Platonistic categories, categories of the form. Uh, he, he fundamentally doesn't even consider ancient Semitic ideas of divine self-fragmentation or divine bodily fluidity. And he assumes categories that are not germane to our normal everyday life, how we categorize things. We categorize things loosely and we experience the world in a contextual way where there's not hard and fast defined attributes and categories. People eat our teleporter examples, our, our Jamie Madrox examples. We have issues categorizing things which he wants to assume that we we don't he wants to assume those those platonic forms in which there are objects with distinct categories the biblical story the biblical picture is contrary to that the attributes of god are characterized by the narratives by the myths in which god acts he he reacts which which we learn about him and his nature and what he does and what he thinks and we take that data we compile it and from that we we get a picture of who god is not from some sort of list of inherent characteristics it's not biblical religion fundamentally and this is what we learn from all the scholars of ancient religion you know, these Platonic influences, these Greek influences started creeping into the church and the categories of thought changed fundamentally. The ways of looking at the world changed and no longer was there divine fluidity. No longer was there uh, the myths take the precedence over over these divine attributes that are inherent, this introspective way to reach reality. Uh, instead, these Platonistic categories overtook the church, this way of Looking at the Bible changed to the same way that they looked at Homer eventually, where you assume your categories about God, and then you try to reinterpret the text into those categories, rather than letting the text speak for itself. I think we need to return to an ancient Semitic way of looking at the world. I think that's more germane to our natural experience. That's more germane to how we experience the world. It just makes more sense overall. We shouldn't be adopting without critical thought Dale Tuggy's categories. Anyways, thanks for listening. I know this is long and it's probably complicated. Think about my examples. Think about the ship, uh, where the ship's being replaced. Think about the teleportation examples. Think about uh, the Mad Madrox, the X-Men Madrox example, divine fluidity, fragmentation. Categories are not hard and fast in our life. We, we have trouble. We have trouble categorizing things. The way we experience the world is more fluid. The way we experience the world is more contextual than people would have us believe. Thank you for listening.